If you have your copy of God's Word, would you take it out and turn with me to Paul's letter to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, considering verse 1. Uh, Romans chapter uh, 13. Paul is in this new section of his epistle in which he is applying the doctrine The grace, the gospel, you remember how this section begins? I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he gives this command, this application of the mercies of God in verse 2 of chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And so now the apostle, throughout these uh, last five or six chapters in his epistle, is applying the mercies of God, applying this doctrine. And he now turns at the beginning of what we know as chapter 13 to address how the wisdom of God is manifested, how the mind is renewed, and what the renewed mind looks like in relation to the state and to the government. The apostle is setting forth principles for living in this world under the civil authority. Now, there is some debate whether Paul is articulating ideal principles for an ideal state or has in mind the Roman authorities in particular. And we'll explore that more perhaps in weeks to come. But before we look at these, uh, these verses, and this week just, just verse 1, uh, we should consider what Paul is not doing, what Paul is not Addressing First, this is not a treatise on government. What Paul articulates here is not an exhaustive assessment, nor does he utilize a great deal of nuance as he makes our duty clear. Now, sometimes nuance is mistreated in our circles. It's a bad name, but nuance is necessary to do theology. The problem, though, is when nuance is misused by some who lack integrity to avoid confessional accountability. But nuance itself is not bad. But the apostle does not have a lot of nuance here. Why does he not have a lot of nuance? Well, he assumes that we have considered the other scriptural witnesses. So one of the things that we must not think we have here in Romans 13 is a treatise on government. There are many other questions, some more, some less relevant to our current situation in uh, this republic. Uh, But Paul does not deal with rebellion in the face of unjust tyranny. Neither does Paul deal with how to respond. What is the Christian response when there are rival claimants to the crown? Uh, The apostle does not address here in Romans 13 what to do when there is a disagreement between levels of authority in a federal system. Uh, perhaps especially relevant for the events of last week, when may a successful rebellion be treated as a legitimate government? The apostle does not address that, nor does the apostle address the Christian duty when the state fails to do its duty. But what is the apostle dealing with here? Paul is dealing with the Christian's duty to a magistrate in the rightful exercise of his authority. That's what John Murray said. Paul is dealing with the the Christian's duty to a magistrate in the rightful exercise of his authority. Well, whole bookshelves have been filled parsing what that means, right? The magistrate, rightful exercise, and his authority. But, you know, in the broadest sense, we can understand what that means, can't we? 
Its meaning is clear for most situations every day. We can get lost in the weeds and we can miss the applications of the principle that Paul is applying. Right? That principle of Romans 12, 1 and 2. The mercies of God. The mercies of God in Christ. How then shall we live? What does the renewed mind look like? How can we discern what is God's good, acceptable and perfect will? Well, a couple of cautions before we begin. We, first, we, we shouldn't look for the exceptions to the rule. Or we should not approach Romans 13 and ask, what is the least I can do and be in conformity here? Or what is the most arcane interpretation I can take in order to satisfy my conscience? This passage, like any other, should move us to repentance. This passage articulates that the magistrate is God's deacon, God's servant, God's minister. When I was uh, being examined for uh, Tennessee Valley Presbytery, they, they asked about you know, the role of, of women in the church. Do you believe women can be deacons? And I said, women can be deacons just as much as Caesar can be a deacon. And uh, they, they didn't like that answer uh, because some churches in Tennessee Valley Presbytery think they have women deacons. They don't. They just call them the wrong thing. Um, but the word... For servant is deacon. The civil magistrate is God's deacon. Now, to different ends than the deacons we have in our congregation, but he is God's deacon, and so he is entitled to respect in that role. Now, we'll unpack what that means more. The civil magistrate is God's deacon, God's servant, God's minister. Before we read God's word, let's pray, asking for his help and blessing. Almighty God, we thank you that you have given us your word that we may have hope. That you may strengthen us by the reading and hearing and preaching of Scripture. Would you build us up into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King, the head of the church? the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of you, our Father, and his. Strengthen us in your grace. Enable us to bless you because of your kindness in ordaining the civil government and training us how we may honor you in this pilgrimage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Amen. Thus far in God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. We will consider uh, this evening only the origin of government, only uh, verse 1. And we will note how the divine origin of the civil magistrate informs our duty uh, to him. We'll consider three things, and then we'll make a couple points of application. First, placement, then subjection, and then the source of government. Let's look now uh, at this placement, placement of, this, uh, of these instructions. 
there are questions as to how this fits. How does this section, verses 1 to 7 in chapter 13, how does it fit with the rest of, of chapter 12 to 16? Now, some allege that this is a later edition from another source, perhaps instituted or inserted in the time of Constantine to bolster the authority of the civil government. Well, of course, we must reject that assertion out of hand. Uh, there's no evidence for it. Others do wonder uh, legitimately what is the connection of this paragraph to what precedes and what follows. It seems as though we could remove these seven verses, they say, without impacting the flow of Paul's argument. Well, okay. Maybe we could remove them, but I'm not sure what that proves. After all, many authors, many preachers will have multiple points that don't necessarily build on one another, but successively apply a prior principle. And that's exactly what the apostle is doing here in Romans chapter 12 to chapter 16. He's applying the principle set forth in verses 1 and 2. And so what Paul is doing is applying, he's explaining how the Christian is to relate to the civil authority. How are we to find God's good, acceptable, and perfect will in relation to the civil authority? This is a necessary corrective. There have always been those who have misunderstood the message of Christ, the kingdom of God, and our relations as citizens of heaven to the civil authorities. There has uh, frequently throughout history been an error that Christian must, the Christians must overthrow the civil authorities in order to establish a Christian nation-state to pave the way for Christ's return. All right, we saw that especially pronounced in the period of the Reformation with the radical Anabaptists. Uh, there uh, may well have been expressions of that in early uh, first century uh, Christianity. But there's a more common error that the idea that Christians do not need to obey the civil authority because they are citizens of heaven. And therefore, they think they are not subject to the civil government. So the apostle is providing a corrective. How are we to discern what is good, acceptable, and perfect? The will of God. Far from this being a later edition or something that is awkwardly placed in, in Paul's writing, this subject flows clearly from his purpose in these final chapters of Romans chapter 12 to chapter 16. How are we transformed rather than conformed? By being subject to the governing authorities. How is our renewed mind visible? By being subject to the governing authorities. So this fits here. This is placed by the Holy Spirit in the writing of the Apostle Paul. And so subjection. In the Greek, Paul begins with all in this sentence. All people, emphasizing the universal duty that is outlined here. This is not, by the way, just a duty for Christians, nor is this just a duty for pagans. Right? Well, the pagans have to be subject to the governing authorities because they're, they're of the world. But we're not of the world, so we don't have to be. No, Paul says, let everyone, all people, be subject to the governing authorities. Christians are to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Now, we'll consider what is meant by subjection in a moment. But first, let's consider to whom Christians are to be subject. Paul uses this word authorities elsewhere to refer to spiritual authorities. 
And so some have articulated or speculated that he's referring to angelic or demonic spiritual powers which are behind the kingdoms of this world. Now, I don't think that's the case here, but I also don't think that means we should not consider that there are spiritual forces at work within the governments of this world. But we, we clearly see demonic forces at work in this republic as the authorities make war on the image of God in man. So who is in view here? Well, it's, it's not especially the spiritual authorities, but those who are invested with the right and power of ruling within the commonwealth. We are to be in subjection to those who are in power. Well, now, what does subjection mean? Well, it can mean obedience. A careless reading here will understand this to mean simply obey. Obey the governing authorities. But that's not what Paul says. In fact, and Martin Lloyd-Jones points this out 50 years ago, if he wanted to say obey, he had a number of other verbs to choose from. But he doesn't say obey. What he says here is more comprehensive than merely obedience. He could have said obey, but here actually is one of the points, one of the few points, in fact, in this section in which he does nuance his command. He doesn't say Obey, he says, be subject to or submit to. This verb is used a number of times throughout the New Testament. It is used of Jesus to his parents in Luke 2.52. He was submissive to them. It's also used of believers one to another in Ephesians 5.21 or 1 Corinthians 16.16 to submit to one another. It's hard to understand that the apostle will be telling Christians to obey one another, but he is telling us to submit to one another. Likewise, it is used of wives to husbands in Ephesians 5.22. So it does not merely mean obey. It may include obedience at times, but more so an attitude of respect and honor to the other. In the church, we submit to one another, and this is the case because the believer recognizes his brethren, her brethren, represent Christ to him or to her. We do not insist on our own way, but we submit to one another. We defer, we respect, and honor one another because of the union we have in Christ and because believers represent Christ to us as part of his church, part of his body, and so we are in submission to them. In the civil sphere, we submit to the magistrate because he too represents Christ to us. In a different way, than than the saints represent Christ to us, but he nonetheless represents Christ to us. Both fellow believers and the governing authorities represent Christ to us differently, in limited ways, in flawed ways, but nonetheless, they represent Christ and so are entitled to submission. A submission that sometimes, perhaps even often, is expressed in obedience. But one that is always manifested in humble respect because of how Christ is represented in the work of the magistrate to maintain order and to punish the wicked. And so submission, subjection, can mean obedience, but it can also mean or be expressed in disobedience. Would you turn in your copy of the Scripture to Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, not too far, chapter 16. There are obvious cases, aren't there, when God's people are not to obey the governing authorities, right? When the governing authorities 
clearly contradict God's commands. But also, that does not mean that Christians are to render servile submission and blind obedience in every other situation. Submission does not mean God's people are not to make full use of their constitutional or civil rights and even refuse to obey the civil magistrate when he exceeds his lawful authority. Even when that lawful authority is defined or limited by the constitution of the commonwealth. Hear what Charles Hodge said 100 years ago, 1835. What rightful authority is must be determined by the institutions and laws of the land or from the nature and design of the office with which the magistrate is invested. The right of deciding on these points, says Hodge, determining where the obligation to obedience ceases and the duty of resistance begins, must, from the nature of the case, rest with the subject and not the ruler. And so what Hodge is reflecting on there is that where there is a constitution or a basic law of a commonwealth, and that constitution or basic law of a commonwealth limits the authority of the magistrate, the people must still be in submission, even if they are free, according to the basic law of the commonwealth, to disregard his unlawful commands. Well, how could Charles Hodge, the dean of 19th century Presbyterianism, say such a thing? Well, he's applying a principle that is based in the Scripture. Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas, you remember, there at the end of chapter 16, have been arrested unjustly, beaten and thrown in jail unjustly. In violation, in fact, not only of God's law, but of Roman law. Well, you remember what happens? There's this earthquake, and the police the following morning, what do they say? They, they command that they be uh, released. Apparently, They let them cool off in jail and send them out of town the next day. But you remember how the apostle does not respond when the police order him to leave town. He does not say, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. I appreciate your service. Be safe out there. I'm getting out of here. Look, Acts chapter 16, verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. This is an important Nuance. This is an important application of the principle of subjection. Do you see how Paul is in subjection to the magistrates even as he disobeys them, as he refuses to obey them? Paul does not protest when his rights are violated. He doesn't get violent in return. But also when tempers have cooled, he lodges his complaint with the proper authorities 
to what Hodge referred to as the institutions and laws of the land. And then, even then, though they request the apostle to leave the city, what does the apostle do? He goes about his business. He strengthens the church. He visits Lydia. He declines to leave, in short, until he is good and ready. He clings to his civil rights. And how does he use his civil rights, by the way? For the strengthening of the church. To demonstrate to the people of Philippi, these, this new church, this new sect, we are not lawbreakers. We are entitled to the protections of the Roman Empire. Now, there's not a great deal of of nuance in Romans 13, but the apostle obviously intends for us to understand his writings here in light of what has transpired elsewhere. And so Hodge sums it up well. No command to do anything morally wrong can be binding, nor can any which transcend the rightful authority of the power. So what was the problem there in Philippi? The civil magistrates had no authority to tell Paul to do what? To get out of town. Now, a a careless reading of Romans 13 might think, well, the police say I have to leave, so I guess I have to leave. But the Christian's duty is to obey the rightful authority of the civil magistrate. And the apostle shows us how to use both our civil rights and to do so in subjection while still refusing to obey an unlawful command. Now, why are we free to do this? Why are we able to use our Christian freedom and to exercise our Christian duty in this way? Well, because of the source of authority. What is the source of authority? God. All authority that exists is delegated from God. Now, one commentator said, no passage has caused more unhappiness and misery than this one. Well, I'm not sure that's the case perhaps a wrong-headed application, perhaps mishandling of this passage, but this passage is not the cause of unhappiness or misery. In fact, this passage is one of the key causes of human flourishing and happiness and blessedness. So what is the source of authority? God. Two clauses here in verse 1. There is no authority except from God, and those that that exist are instituted by God. Let's take the first one first. There's no authority except from God. That's perhaps the easier of the two. What is Paul saying? Where there is any legitimate authority, it comes from God. It is lawfully wielded by those deputized by God to carry that authority in his place, in his stead. Calvin says this, powers are from God, not as pestilence and famine and wars and other visitations for sin are said to be from him, but because he has appointed them for the legitimate and just government of the world. Now, Calvin also notes a distinction. Though tyrannies and unjust exercise of a power, as they are full of disorder, are not an ordained government, yet the rightful government is ordained by God for the well-being of mankind. So Calvin is seeing a distinction that tyrannical powers, those who exceed their authority, they are not legitimate. They are not instituted by God because they do not have authority from him. But magistrates exercising lawful authority 
do so under God's authority, whether they are believers or not. Why? Because it's a lawful thing to repel invasions. It is a lawful thing to remedy evil. It is a lawful thing to preserve order and to banish disorder. And so when the magistrate does that, he is exercising God's authority. And so we ought to submit to a government that does that sort of thing. To cheerfully respect and honor the right and authority of magistrates to be useful to men, says John Calvin. But at the same time, we understand that tyranny and injustice are not instituted by God. Yes, the magistrate may do so, might do so. But we must not think that his authority to do that is instituted by God. You see, people can twist what God institutes, can't they? Sometimes we forget that people do that, that people twist the good institutions of God. But that does not mean that the institution itself is not good. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that simply because, simply because something is misused, that it's bad. Right? Sometimes people do that with, with alcohol. Right? People abuse alcohol, so we should ban alcohol. People abuse government power, so government is bad. But what if we did that for everything? Some husbands abuse their wives, so should we abolish marriage? Some pastors abuse the flock, should we abolish the church? Some food will give you an allergic reaction. Should we abolish food? Some people abuse science, technology, or education. Should we abolish learning? No, of course not. Simply because a good thing from God is abused does not mean the gift of God has become bad. And so we must be careful in assessing our view of government not to do so in light of an abuse of authority, but in light of the purpose for which God instituted all authority. So let's move on to that second clause there at the end of verse 1. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Now this clause can be more confusing, even troubling, Is it saying that if someone is in power, it is because God has placed him there? Seems like questions of the Christian and the civil magistrate invariably race rapidly to uh, the most extreme cases, right? I know what you're all thinking. Did God grant Hitler the authority he had? Well, we would do well to remember that extreme or hard cases make bad law and do not well illustrate the principle. But you know what? The question is fair, isn't it? It's a legitimate question. Simply because a person has power, does that mean he is instituted by God or that he is a legitimate authority? Well, no. We're talking about civil authority. We're not talking about the king of the hill, right? That might makes right. This does mean that human government is a divine institution and those institutions who execute the lawful authority of the magistrate to the ends for which it is ordained are to be regarded as acting by divine appointment. Even under the most wicked regime, there are probably still police who are arresting thieves and murderers even if the regime itself is wicked. And so in that sense, those are authorities put in place 
to punish the wicked. God has instituted authorities to do that, even if they also exceed their authority. And we might later consider in in greater detail how even a wicked government, generally speaking, is better than no government. Generally speaking, a wicked government is better than anarchy. To go back to that question about the Third Reich, well, in many ways, that was anarchy. You think perhaps especially of the Freisler's People's Court as the, as the allies are bombing the city of Berlin and there's Freisler just sitting in his court condemning people to die and die and die. That's, that's just anarchy. But we'll develop that perhaps more later. Paul will explain the ends of the magistrate later. But the apostle is speaking of the office of power. The office of the government is instituted by God. But he's not giving blanket approval to everything that anyone in that office ever does. After all, Paul was abused by the governing authorities. The Lord Jesus Christ, likewise, suffered and died at the hands of civil authority acting unjustly and incompetently. The point, however, of the apostle is that when the magistrate carries out the lawful purposes of government... He acts with God's authority, since he is instituted by God for that purpose. Authority, where does authority come from? It comes not from the consent of the government, the governed. It comes from God. Now, in our day, there are still vestiges of that enlightenment idea that the power derives from the consent of the governed. That idea is enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, isn't it? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That's not true. There are people who appeal to the Declaration of Independence to talk about our Christian heritage. Well, the Declaration of Independence is not a Christian document. It is not a Christian idea to say that the governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. The power to govern does not come from the consent of the people. It sounds like a nice idea, though, doesn't it? But it's not a biblical idea. Nor should we expect the Declaration of Independence to convey biblical principles. That shouldn't trouble us in the least. From whence is the authority of the civil magistrate derived? Not from the people, not for the people, not by the people, but from God and for God, from divine right. And so what can we say, boy, of application? Well, God has divinely instituted government to serve his purposes and to represent his authority in the world as his servant. That's what the apostle says here. So what can we say to apply this? Well, first, Christians must repent of worldly views of civil authority. This philosophy of government, these principles of government here, grate against the sensibilities of postmodern Americans as well as the Enlightenment principles on which this republic was founded. But you know, that's fine. That's okay. If our sensibilities are offended by the Scripture, in fact, that's a good thing. If our sensibilities are offended by the Scripture because that is the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin. We seek truth and holiness and we seek grace rather than 
patriotism. We are subjects of the kingdom of God. And so where the scripture shows us our need to repent, that is good because there is abundant grace for those who turn in repentance and faith. That's, in fact, what the apostle is applying here. God has instituted civil authorities not for our purposes, but for his purposes. For our good, but for his purposes. The civil authority exists, and we'll look in greater detail, God willing, next week. The civil authority exists for the preservation of order. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this 50 years ago. The business of the state is mainly negative. Its main function is to limit evil. That is its mandate. But what is an, what is, what is an American view of government? Uh, Americans often view the, the purpose of, of our government is to export democracy, to make the world safe for democracy. Isn't that what Woodrow Wilson said? He was a Presbyterian elder, wasn't he? But so much of what Americans view as the role of government actually transcends the authority given to it by God. Martin Lloyd-Jones again said, the state can do very little positive good. Likewise, the government does not exist to instill morals. Charles Hodge, again, religion and morality as such are not within the legitimate sphere of civil authority. Now, that's not to say the government should not enforce the moral law, the Ten Commandments, which are revealed in natural law. Yes, the civil magistrate should uphold the Decalogue, absolutely. But that's different from enforcing religion and morality. Yet we see in the last century Americans trying to use the government school system to impose religion and morality upon immigrants. And today we see the disastrous effects of those endeavors in the government school system as a new system of religion and morality is imposed. And by the way, J. Gresham Machen warned us about that very thing a hundred years ago in his Christianity and Liberalism. So Christians should repent of a view of government that is too big and ill-suited for the ends for which God designed it. But Christians also should repent of views that taxation is theft, or that government is in and of itself evil or a necessary evil. Now, our civil constitution starkly limits the authority of the civil magistrate in this land. That's good. Christians are right to insist on all the protections of the laws of the land. But also we must not disdain the government. Because it is instituted by God. And those who execute the office are doing the Lord's work. Insofar as they are fulfilling the ministry given to them by the great king. This is a reminder that we need the mercies of God in Christ to aid us. We need the Holy Spirit of Christ to transform us and the word of Christ to teach us how to submit, how to think rightly about the governing authorities. There are perhaps few areas in which we more easily and readily fall into sin than we Americans consider the civil government. We must not abuse the liberties given us by God according to the laws of the land to speak or to think with contempt toward the institutions God has established for our good. Our failure, our sin in this area should confront us afresh with our need of God's grace in Christ and should move us to gratitude for his faithful mercies. And so that's the first point of application, that Christians must repent of worldly views of civil authority. But there's a second thing to consider by way of application, that the divine mandate for civil authority 
preserves people from tyranny, and promotes human flourishing. Now, this is not the divine right of kings. But the Enlightenment men did recognize the danger of democracy. And so when they created a constitutional republic, they founded it upon a philosophy. But a philosophy is a very shaky foundation for a republic. And we're seeing that now, aren't we? You see, when, when the consent of the governed is the foundation of your government, well, that can quickly degenerate into the tyranny of the majority, just as quickly as despotism can become tyrannical. Was it Mel Gibson said, why would I exchange one tyrant a thousand miles away for a thousand tyrants one mile away? The divine mandate preserves the people from tyranny and promotes human flourishing. The divine mandate given to kings and all those in authority is a charter preserving the freedom of the people. Samuel Rutherford says this in the 17th century, while king and parliament do acts of tyranny against God's law and all good laws of men, they do not the things that pertain to their charge and the execution of their office. Therefore, by our confession, to resist them in tyrannical acts is, to, is not to resist the oracles of God. And so what he's saying is when the government is exceeding its authority, whether the authority delegated to it by God or even the authority of the law of the land, to resist that is not to resist the ordinance of God. When the governing authorities depart from their charge from God in executing their office, if we resist them, we are not resisting what has been instituted by God. To resist tyranny is to do a service to God. That's what uh, Jonathan Edwards Jr., not uh, the Jonathan Edwards you're thinking of, but his son. Jonathan Edwards Jr. said this. The truth is, the whole spirit of the scripture sustains it. That rulers are bound to rule in fear of God and for the good of the people. And if they do not, then in resisting them, we are doing God's service. Now, he's not saying that if the magistrate is not a Christian, we may resist him. But what he is saying is that when the magistrate descends into tyranny, to resist him is doing a service to God. Here we see the kindness of God. That God has instituted authority for the purpose of doing good to those made in his image. You remember why this little magistrate was instituted, Genesis 9. And all the intents of, of man's heart is wicked continually. And so God says, if man sheds blood, by man shall his blood be shed. God would have been well within his rights to give us over to our depraved hearts. To live in fear of being killed or killing someone else. But what did God do? Instead, he in his kindness instituted the government to preserve life. To punish evil. And so he instituted government not to destroy and oppress and to subject and to servile fear. But he instituted it so that grace may flourish. So that mankind may be fruitful, may multiply and fill the earth to subdue it now under the gospel for the glory of God and the praise of Christ. Government is instituted to serve God. To manifest his authority on earth by restraining evil until the day when it shall be on earth as it is in heaven. When Christ shall reign in the midst of his people and when the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdom of our Lord. 
and of his Christ, when he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so faithful. You are so faithful. You have not given over this wicked race to what we deserve. But you have restrained evil. And you have sent forth your Son, who will reign in righteousness. We pray that you would enable us to live and to walk in the light of his face, our King. Grow us in repentance and faith. Grow us in assurance of pardon, that we may rest in him. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.